Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. And we're back with another episode of Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. Hope you got a chance to hear the podcast the last two weeks when my guest was David Leaf and we were talking about the genius of Brian Wilson. If you missed those episodes, really, really a good interview. This week, no interview at all. It's just me talking to you. What I thought I would do this week, I've done this a couple of times in the past, but uh, this is basically free association, where I start with a, a topic and then just kind of riff from there and take it in whatever direction uh, it wants to go. And so I have no idea beyond this first topic what I'm going to talk about <laughs> for this episode. So hopefully it's good. Hopefully it's interesting. So that's this week on Hollywood and Levine. So what I want to start with is the Frasier reboot, because uh, they finally got an order. This has kind of been in development for a couple of years now. They finally got an order to actually produce episodes for Paramount Plus of the new reboot of Frasier. And since I was a part of Frasier for many years, uh, Frazier itself, and prior to that, Cheers, I basically wrote him for, uh, let's see, uh, 20 years <laughs> I wrote that character. So a lot of people have come to me and said, what do you think, and am I going to be a part of it? The answer to the second question is no. No one has contacted me. I actually don't even know who is doing the reboot of Frasier. None of the uh, original Frasier writers or producers are involved, uh, from what I understand. It's a whole new staff. And uh, my feeling about the show, I love Frasier. I love the characters. I wish them the very best. I think they're walking into a propeller. Uh, I think it is a very, very tall assignment to reboot one of the most beloved shows of all time. Now, you know it's going to be compared to the original. So, wow. Um, that is a, a pretty tall assignment. Again, I hope they pull it off. Uh, I look forward to seeing it myself, but ugh, I would not really want to be them. Now, Kelsey was uh, asked about this, and again, I love Kelsey Grammer. He's a great guy. Worked with him for many years. Lovely man. It's not been in my home, but he's a lovely man. And they asked him about it, and he said, well, 
you got Frasier, and that's the secret sauce. In other words, as long as you got Frasier, then the show is going to be a hit. Uh, I don't think so, because I look back at um, a couple of the other sitcoms that Kelsey Grammer has done since Frasier, and with all due respect, I think it was Hank was the name of one of them, and Back to You, which was a show with uh, Patricia Heaton, where they were co-anchors for a local newscast. And in both cases, he was playing Frasier. He was absolutely playing Frasier. So just the notion of playing the character of Frasier is not necessarily secret sauce, as far as I'm concerned. Um, mm-hmm. Sauce. Okay, when I think of sauce, I think of my grandmother. Uh, I have two grandmothers. One was a great cook. Now, usually you think, and it's almost kind of a stereotype, that all grandmothers are great cooks. One was, and the other, who I dearly loved and had great qualities and was so much fun, was not a good cook. But uh, the one who was a good cook, Nana Lil, oh, man, uh, great sauces, made her own corned beef, spoiled me for some dishes like blintzes. It's like I cannot eat a store-bought blintz because of how good uh, my grandmother's blintzes were. My favorite story involving my grandmother In the early 60s, they moved out to a residential community in uh, California called Hammett. If you know the desert, if you know Palm Springs and Palm Desert and Indio, it is like that, and it's probably 30 or 40 minutes away from Palm Springs. But it has all the disadvantages, the heat, just miserable, and tumbleweeds floating by, just awful, sandstorms, and none of the advantages. You don't have the great restaurants. You don't have any great hotels. I don't understand, and I know it's a generational thing back then where... Uh, people reached the age of 60 and they felt that they had to move to where it was a thousand degrees and uh, away from everything. I was like, I don't know what they did all day other than sit in the house in the air conditioning. But uh, they moved out to a house in Hammett, which is about a two-hour drive from Los Angeles. And in 1964, when I was a kid, my uh, parents went to the World's Fair in New York. And, uh, and so my younger brother and I stayed with my grandparents in Hammett. We were stuck in Hammett for two weeks. And I remember one day I was listening to the radio, and I was sitting in, like, the breakfast nook, and my grandmother was making dinner, you know, stuffed cabbage or something great. And I was listening to a radio station out of San Bernardino, KFXM. And at the time, there was a uh, a big problem in the Inland Empire 
that there was a masked rapist who was going around terrorizing San Bernardino and Riverside. So I'm listening to the radio one day, and uh, they come on with a uh, public service announcement. Help KFXM find the hooded rapist. If you have any information, call us, blah, blah, blah. But it was help KFXM find the hooded rapist. And my grandmother turns to me and goes, such a contest. (laughs) She thought that that was a radio contest. That's my favorite moment with Nana Lil. I worked in San Bernardino Radio. The competition to KFXM was a station called Cayman. And back in the spring of 1973, when I was a swing and top 40 disc jockey, uh, I worked at Cayman. I got hired to do the all-night show from midnight to 6. I got paid the exorbitant fee of $650 a month. Not a week, guys. A month. And I was doing the all-night show. And again, I'm trying to be funny between every record, and I'm just killing myself to do the best possible show. And there's nobody listening. My God, it's middle of the night. The radio station is in a cow pasture uh, with a couple of towers. It was really, really depressing. And I kept plugging the program director, put me on at a better time. Put me on in the evening. Oh, no, you're the all-night guy. So the ratings came out. And uh, the only hour that was rated from the all-night show was 5 to 6 a.m. And so the book comes in at like 9 o'clock in the morning. And I'm asleep, having gone to sleep at 7 after finishing my show at 6. And the phone rings, and it's the program director. And he said, okay, starting tonight, you're on from 6 to midnight. And I went like, huh? What? Why? And he said, the rating book came in. And so I figured, oh, okay, I probably did pretty well. I said, so how did I do? He said, come down here and look at this. I'm not going to tell you over the phone. Come down here and look at this. So... I was intrigued. I dragged myself out of bed, got dressed, barreled down to the radio station, and took a look at the rating book. And I got, from 5 to 6 a.m., an 85 share. 85 share. Now, let's put this in perspective. How many people were up at 5 o'clock in the morning who had the book, who had the diary that they were filling out. So maybe there were nine people and eight of them (laughs) were listening to me. Whatever it is, uh, I'm sure I still didn't have a huge audience, but that share of 85%. So needless to say, now I'm on 6 to Midnight, I'm cooking, I'm having a great time. As always happened to me in my radio career, the station changed ownership. And the new owners came in, 
and they kind of wanted to take the station in a little different direction, and they heard me at night, and, uh, you know, I'm goofing around a lot on the radio, and um, and I'm, you know, making fun of everything, and uh, they did not love me. They did not love me. Uh, I knew I was not long for that radio station. So now we come to the ratings period, and I had this weird psychosomatic thing where I would get a bad head cold at the start of every ratings period. And usually in smaller markets, there were one maybe two rating periods a year. But it was uncanny. I was always catching a cold. And sure enough, here it is, the start of the rating book. I'm fighting for my life to keep my job at this radio station. I figure, man, I got to really get good ratings. And wouldn't you know, I got my bad head cold. So what I decided to do was make a bit of it. I went on the air and I thought, I got a horrible cold. Uh, Do you have any cold remedies? And people are calling up with cold remedies. And I had people drive down to the radio station and give me chicken soup and various things. And it turned into a really fun bit. And I did that for a couple of nights and my cold went away and I was fine. Interestingly, I figured, okay, now when I get a cold, I know what to do. I know how to handle it. I'll just do this bit. Never got a cold again before the ratings period. So I kick ass during that ratings period. But before the book comes out, they decide... No, we just can't stand this guy in the in the evening. Now, they wanted to get rid of me, but they didn't want to fire me because they didn't want to pay unemployment. And this was this was a trick that radio stations did quite often. Try to get you to quit. So I get a call from the now new program director never really liked me. And he said, we're moving you back to midnight to six. And I said, okay, look, I I know what this is about. Just fire me. Just fire me. No, no, uh, we, we, we like you, but we want you on from midnight to six. I said, no, you don't. I said, you're just trying to save money. I mean, at least fire me. And he said, nope, you got to show up tonight. And I said, okay. So I planned on showing up at midnight. And earlier that day, I decided to take a little stroll to a record store. And I bought an album. And I brought it with me. And I go on the air at 12 o'clock. And I'm playing the top 40 records. I'm following the format. Then we get to 1230, 
And I said, you know, a lot of radio stations now are playing albums. You know, albums are the hip new thing. So I want to play an album for you. And I put on Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish on a top 40 station. Well, three minutes into it, the hotline rings. Of course. I don't answer. It rings and it rings. I don't answer. And meanwhile, I'm just letting this thing play. It's like a half hour aside. And, uh, you know, if I were a rich man and matchmaker, matchmaker, all going off in Yiddish, could imagine somebody drunk getting in their car, listening to K-Men, and there's <laughs> matchmaker, matchmaker in Yiddish coming out of this speaker. Like, where's Elton John, man? About 20 minutes later, I hear this car roar up to the station, you know, the wheels squealing and dust flying, and the program director comes in, and he's just so fucking pissed. He goes, all right, you're fired. And I, okay. And I left. And he had to do the show from midnight to six. So uh, that was the end of my tenure at uh, Cayman. I came back home to Los Angeles because why live in San Bernardino if you don't have to? So I was staying with my parents and I was trying to get the next job. I was sending out my tapes and waiting and hearing back nothing. And back in those days, you pretty much had to sit by the phone. There weren't even phone answering machines. Yeah, I know. Those are the pterodactyls were in the backyard. So in the evening, because the days were really depressing, in the evening, I would go to the Fox Venice Theater, which was a revival house. There are still a few revival houses left, not many. In Los Angeles, we have the New Art, and we have the New Beverly, which is still alive because Quentin Tarantino bought it. But in those days, the only way that you could see old movies uncut, and you'd see them on the silver screen, were to go to revival houses. And they played great old movies, and, and I was introduced to so many movies and genres that I had no idea about. I mean, it was just a, a great course in film history. And every so often they'd show something like uh, this movie Mean Streets by this young director, Martin Scorsese. And you look at it and you go, wow, wow, what is this? One of the movies I remember seeing for the first time at the Fox Venice, and there was always a double feature. And I went to see The Maltese Falcon because I loved that movie. I'd seen it on TV, but I wanted to see it on the big screen. And I was pretty much going to the Fox Venice Theater every night. And um, other movie playing with it was this thing called The Big Sleep. Okay, I'll watch The Big Sleep. 
Oh my God. It was fantastic. It's a uh, Philip Marlowe movie, Raymond Chandler character. It was Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. And it was all noir and it was all old L.A. And he's got the trench coat and the fedora, black and white. It just looked fantastic. I loved this movie. I absolutely fell in love with this movie. Even though it is so unbelievably confusing, there's just no way to decipher this movie. And it's not just me, because William Faulkner was hired to write the screenplay. And he based it off of Raymond Chandler's book, The Big Sleep. And he was like totally confused by a few things. So he called Raymond Chandler. And he said, let me ask you a couple of questions because I'm a little confused about the storyline here. Chandler said, okay, what are your questions? And he goes, well, how could... Mars be at the Lido Pier when he was also, and how did Marlowe know that the guy who was taking pictures was going to be in this location and blah, 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 whatever. And Chandler said, well, he was there because da, 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 and he knew such and such. And Faulkner said, no, but, but he couldn't because that person was already dead. So he could not have gotten that information from that person. And, uh, and Marlowe couldn't have known this because that guy was still in jail at the time. And so that didn't make sense. Long pause. Chandler goes, well, you're on your own. Good luck. <laughs> A few years ago, they apparently recovered from the original film a scene that had been cut in a police station that comes like halfway through the film that supposedly explains everything that's going on and will get you caught up. So this was playing at the New Art Theater, Revival Theater in West Los Angeles. I was there opening night, and it was not just me. There was a line around the block. Lots of fans for the big sleep. So we're watching the movie, and that scene comes along, and they're describing this, and, and Carmen, and this, and then Marlo, and then Mars came by. Da, 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 da. I was even more confused. And I'm looking around the theater, and everybody is doing the same thing. They're like looking at each other like, do you know what, does this make sense to you? What? So I recommend that movie, even though <laughs> I guarantee you will not understand it. One of the things I loved about that movie was that it was set in L.A., and having been born and raised in Los Angeles, I have a real nostalgic 
love of this town. This was a very corrupt city in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. You talk about Chicago? There's nothing compared to what was going on in this city in the first half of the 20th century. You saw the movie Chinatown, and it sort of touched on it. I mean, there was graft and the police and, oh, man, the mayor and, and everybody. And, uh, you know, there was a, a muckraker. Actually, he, he, he was a restauranteer uh, named Clifton. And he had these restaurants, Clifton's Cafeterias, which had just the most bizarre. It was like, like a Disney set where he had rooms that were Polynesian rooms and uh, Western-style rooms, just crazy-ass shit for uh, what really was a crappy cafeteria. But it was sure fun as a kid to go to Clifton's. Oh, my God. Anyway, uh, Clifton had a radio show, and he would obviously plug his restaurant, and he would, like, talk about the news of the day. And he kind of went after, like, some of the policemen as being corrupt, and he was trying to expose some of the uh, chicanery that was going on in the city. And uh, his car was bombed, and I think they set his house on fire. So that's what L.A. was. You, you think of it as being really mellow and everything, no, uh, that is not the case. Um, there were some great old restaurants in addition to Clifton's Cafeteria. Um, there was uh, a restaurant called Felipe's that is still there. It's in downtown Los Angeles, the home of the beef dip sandwich. You go up to a counter, you order your food, there's sawdust on the floor, there's benches uh, to sit on and like a few wooden booths and um, you could stand in line and there's homeless guys, there's the mayor, there's uh, Hollywood actors, everybody knew to go to Felipe's. Uh, Also, there was a like a club of former train engineers that would meet once a week at Felipe's. And another day a week, there was like a group of old circus clowns, and they would all get together and, I guess, bitch about the lion tamer or whatever. But, uh, yeah, it was a big group of circus clowns that would gather at Felipe's. And my partner David Isaacs and I thought, you know, this is such a colorful, interesting venue. This was, now we're talking late 90s, I believe. And we thought, you know, this would make a great pilot. This would make a great series, kind of like Cheers, but set in a place like Felipe's. And we called the show Midnight, that every week, the camera would start on a clock that was at midnight, and then the 
camera would pull back and we would begin the episode and all of it would take place between like midnight and six and all of the sort of forgotten invisible people of L.A. would inhabit this place. Uh, We had a boxer and we had a lot of diversity actually way back then because there was a lot of diversity. And um, so we came up with the idea of this pilot. We took it to NBC. This is a story in networks. So when we pitch a pilot, we have the premise, we have the characters, and we also have three or four stories, possible stories. So you get a sense of where the show is going. We also incorporate a lot of jokes to make it really funny. Well, this was maybe the best pitch meeting we had ever had. There were three or four NBC executives in the room, and they were rolling on the floor. They just loved this. And they said, oh, my God, this is our next Cheers. We we love this. Great. So we go home, and we wait for them to pick it up. And we get a call from NBC. Um, we loved it. Does it have to be set in the middle of the night? I said, yeah, that's the whole premise of the show. Otherwise, it's just, it's a restaurant. This is very unique. God, well, we're we're a little nervous. Uh, It's like, look, because uh, there was a John LaRiquette show that was set at night, but it was like a bus terminal. It was really, really dreary. I said, this is going to be bright and lively and fun characters. It's not going to be dreary at all. Yeah, but like, what if a story like goes into the morning and, you know, and then you're, you're struggling. I said, you know, we'll have a, another backdrop. If the story goes into the morning, we can handle that. Yeah. We're just, we're just thinking, you know, of you guys and, you know, I said, thank you. We appreciate the concern. This is the premise. They passed. They didn't want to do a show in the middle of the night. Again, the best pitch we ever had. Now, we then take it to CBS and have the worst pitch we've ever done. Same thing. Same jokes. Same characters. And they were sitting there at CBS like, uh, like death, just death. It was the only time that I ever seriously thought of just stopping in the middle of a pitch and saying, well, okay, look, guys, obviously we're wasting your time. Uh, we'll come back with something else. Uh, but I figured, all right, persevere through this. So we do. We finish the pitch which is like dragging a dead horse across the finish line to shoot it. 
And I say, are there any questions? <laughs> and they go, uh, no, we got it. We got it. Um, okay. And we're like, uh, okay, well, thank you. We'll wait to hear from you. And he goes, no, okay, I'll buy it. I went, what? Yeah, it's kind of like taxi. We we sort of want to do a taxi type of thing. So, uh, yeah, we'll buy it. So they did. They bought it. We wrote, I think, one of our best pilots ever. They pass. I call up the VP of comedy and go, what happened? And he said, uh, well, Les looked at the development slate and said, I don't want to do a show that's set in the middle of the night. I said, wait a minute. You bought this in August, and it's now January. This is the first time that Les Moonves, who was the president of CBS back then, this was the first time that Les Moonves has been aware of this project? It hasn't been in development slates in the last five, six months? And he goes, ah, okay, let me tell you what happened. He said, Les is a very big fan of you guys, and he's very nervous that you're going to go off and develop a show that's going to get on the air at some other network. So we got instructions to buy whatever you came in with. I said, so you had no intention of making this at all, ever. He said, yeah. He said, we're just trying to take you off the market. And they paid us, so it's not like, you know, we weren't paid for the pilot, but still, they had absolutely no intention of doing it. And you come away going, should I be furious or should I be flattered that they think that much of us that they would just pay anything to take us off the market? Well, needless to say, that show never got on. And um, actually, they had nothing to worry about in terms of ABC, because in our entire career, we sold two pilots to ABC. Neither of them got made. One was in 1979 and the other was 1980. So over 40 years, we have not sold a pilot to ABC. CBS, meanwhile, we made three pilots and all three pilots got to series including the famous Big Wave Daves. And uh, look at the clock. 
Oh, my God. I've done it. I've killed over 30 minutes talking about uh, this various nonsense. Hopefully, this was interesting. It was fun for me to do. Let me know if you like it. HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com. That's HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com. Because it's really fun to do. And hopefully, like I said, uh, it's interesting to you as well. By the way, coming up in a few weeks, my 300th episode. Hopefully, I'll do something a little special for that. Well, our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister, Butler, Howard Hoffman, to John Wolfert, Bruce, and Jason Miller. Like I said, get in touch with me, Hollywood Levine at Outlook.com. I am on Twitter, at Ken Levine. I'm also on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine, where I showcase my cartoons. Please uh, subscribe and follow me on that. Uh, Thanks so much for listening this week. I'll be back with another episode of Hollywood and Levine next week. Have a good week. Bye-bye. K-Men 129.